0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Leading in a Crisis podcast. On this podcast, we talk about all things crisis management with a special focus on leadership. We deliver this through interviews, storytelling, and lessons learned from experienced crisis leaders. I'm Tom Mueller in Houston. I'd like to welcome my co-host, Mark Mullen, who's joining us again from Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Mark.
1: Hi, Tom. Happy to
0: be here. Hey, before we jump in and, and speak with our guests today, Mark, I just wanted to share with you, I had my first fan moment this week here in the Houston area. I was doing training with a client and I was talking to one of the participants in a break about the podcast because we had some episodes that are relevant to a project she's working on and she just looks up at me and says, you're that podcast? I love that podcast. I love you guys. She said, I've given you guys five star ratings. <laughs> I'm like, woohoo! Wow, that's great. Our first fan moment. So that was a lot of fun. Would you go ahead and uh, introduce our special guest today? And let's get the conversation started.
1: Sure, Tom. And again, it's a distinct pleasure to be able to introduce Adam O'Wine to the world, I guess, Adam. It's nice to have you with us, Adam is a 35-year veteran, veteran of the United States Coast Guard, and he's responded to a massive number of actual events in crisis. Um, the, your, uh, your record is long and distinguished, Adam. Um, in addition to responding, though, he actually supervised the development of the policies and protocols uh, to sustain joint information center training for the Coast Guard, Um, And then he's also um, built out the public information officer liaison qualifications for NIMS. So basically if you pick up a FOG field operations guide or take a national incident management system training in the JECA liaison, you're going to be working with Adam's handwork. So he's got a a deep experience and not just the theory, but the practice of of response communication. Um, And, in his spare time, he's the Emergency Management Coordinator for Fairfield County, Pennsylvania um, Emergency Management Agency. So Adam, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And I'll stop talking about who you are. And we'll let you take a few minutes to kind of give us an understanding about your background and your passions and so on.
2: Mark, uh, your good day. And thanks uh, for the introduction there. That was really fantastic. I appreciate that. Um, I, on that, the whole JIC um, development, I was actually part of a team, not necessarily the possible person heading up. I was really one of many people that worked together to develop the national response teams, JIC, or Joint Information Center model. And um, I, I went into that as a, as a reluctant uh, member. I wasn't a fan of the concept at the time. I thought I was a practice petitioner in the field and didn't really need that. And I would... That would prove to be untrue, and I actually become, of course, later a big champion of it, and continue to go on and help do all the revisions to the uh, the manual all the way up until I retired. Uh, as far as my experience goes, you mentioned thirty years in the Coast Guard. I now uh, retired somewhat, but I've gotten back into the uh, response field. I work for uh, Emergency Management Solutions as a senior consultant, and most recently I dealt with the. Uh, 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 standing up a hospital for COVID down in Houston, uh, responding to the uh, migrant children that were um, cast across the border and needed to be taken care of. And we set up uh, several camps to help deal with that. And then with the uh, Afghan uh, debacle that went down, we uh, helped with um, reuniting more than 13,000 pieces of luggage back to the owners that uh, ended up here. That would include both American citizens as well as Afghans. And so there's a lot of new experience that I got out in the civilian world. It was very, very much different than the things I had done uh, all the previous years in the Coast Guard.
0: Well, Adam, if I can, I'll just I'll jump right in here. And, um, you know, I want to talk to you about, you know, dealing with large scale uh, emergency response and crisis management situations, you know, when we get into those situations, uh, it puts a lot of stress on the leaders uh, of the organization, you know, the incident commander, the section chiefs, um, and but even people who are just working in the JIC or a section. Sometimes you see a leader who doesn't perform well or doesn't quite meet expectations and I wonder if you could share an example of a situation where you saw a leader who who didn't quite, you know, lead the team as well as might have been done. And what can we learn from that failure?
2: Uh, yeah, um, unfortunately, I probably have more examples than I would like to share. But uh, there was one in particular, we responding to a derailment, Pulseboro, Paul, New Jersey, and the um, incident commander was a nice person and had an excellent staff for both the joint Information center as well as a liaison officer and did not listen to anything that they provided as far as guidance. Um, there was a hostile public that we were dealing with who had felt that they had not been given a lot of information uh, that they needed. They, and of course, there was a with the derailment, there was a chemical spill. And there was a shelter in place that would be in place. And then the wind would shift and they would drop certain areas and say it was safe to come out. And then suddenly the wind would shift back and everybody would have to take shelter again. And you could imagine the amount of um, local community frustration that grew up from that. And there was a uh, town meeting type setup. And we had actually... Gotten the person to instead of doing the New England style town meeting where they sit behind the table and they address questions, we set it up as an information fair with a bunch of booths where if you came in, you had a claim for this or. Uh, concern about that. You could go to the various tables and talk to uh, the people you needed to speak with. That was a great way of, def- or that's normally a great way of diffusing um, the anger that would build up when you come to a town meeting and you can't get your questions answered because so much is going on. Everything was working fine until the uh, the incident commander decided that uh, that individual wanted to step up and address the public. And uh, I said, no, do not do that. You'll completely undermine all the things we've gotten into doing this fair, and you're going to become the focus of all hostility. Disregarded what we said, walked up onto the stage, began speaking. And uh, I know that there were several people there who said, you know, I, Mr. Wine, it looked like you wanted to dive and tackle that individual off the stage. And it did. She, she spun up to the point where the police had to come in because we were uh, basically minor level riot began to break out where we, we were there. So uh, it's a, it's astounding. You can gather a group of highly trained individuals who know a lot about experience and it can all be undone by a senior staff member who just ignores that advice and goes ahead with what they think. I've got a gut feeling. I think this is what I should do. It was painful to watch that occur and to be there and actually be on the team that was like, well, I I think that would be considered a drastic failure moment right there.
0: Mm-hmm. And- so is, um, yeah, it's interesting, you know, when you think about town hall meetings and the formats, you know, there's a couple ways you can go and you guys obviously decided the open mic thing wasn't going to be the best for this situation. And oftentimes when you, you know, when the public is very angry, um, we try to avoid that. I saw that in, um, you know, in the derailment in uh, Palestine, East Palestine, Ohio, where right. they did a town hall meeting, same thing. Just did it with, uh, you know, without the open mic. And gosh, before the meeting started, the mayor intervened and changed formats and brought it back right. to an open mic thing.
2: Right, right, and that's all it takes. Is you know, you had all the expertise and everything in place, and it was ruined by the one one person deciding to step onto the mic. So uh, that's definitely an indication where you have a, and I, I called a weak leadership all the way through. Um, you, uh, there was a constant not listening to the mm-hmm. subject matter experts that are there.
0: Just how do you how do you work through that then, Adam? I mean, that's a very frustrating thing for a PIO, a situation for a PIO to be in.
2: Uh, Fortunately, I was actually the functioning liaison officer at that time. Uh, the person who was the PIO. Uh, I wanted to pull her hair out. That's the only way to describe it. She uh was uh, constantly being thwarted um and everything she was doing and trying to get the information out and, and, and dealing with stuff. So I I know this doesn't sound quite right, but uh as far as liaison officer, I would actually just do things and then inform the information uh, the uh incident commander that these things had occurred so that it wasn't I know it's not really, you know, you're supposed to, Hey, this is what we plan to do. Do we have your permission? I would just do them and ask for forgiveness later because I did not want this individual to fail. Well, I didn't want the team to fail. And, uh, so I said, well, you know, we're just going to do this for lays on it. And when it gets done, we'll just go tell her that, Hey, this worked out. And, and she seemed to be okay with, oh, that worked out well. But then she would say things, you know, I'd like to kind of be in on that. And I'm thinking, no, I do not want you to be part of this because you're going to start talking and and alienate all these um uh, stakeholders that we have involved in are sh- sh- coming to the the point where they're actually seeing us as an ally rather than an adversary in a in a response cleanup situation. So uh um yeah, I guess that's kind of in the military. You can kind of get away with that. I don't think it works in the civilian world in any way. That's pretty much one way way to getting fired. But I had a certain level of protection being so senior in the Coast Guard by then that there really wasn't much they could do for me. So I, I thought, you know, I would do what was right to get done and 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 try to save as much as I can with the response. So. How do you do it out there in, in the in the civilian world? I I don't know. I mean, there's just examples after examples. Most recently, of people just completely failing, despite the fact when you look behind them, you see they've got experts helping them. But you know, I guess you know they're, they're arrogant in their ignorance and they insist on doing things their own way.
1: So that leads to a question I often have, which is. These the PIO liaison officers tend to be pretty well-trained, pretty good at their jobs, um, very capable of advising, fulfilling their role of advising incident command. Why does that not work? What, what are we missing that makes an incident commander think that they're better at communications than the PIO would be?
2: We have this analogy that we uh, used to pass around inside the public affairs realm in the Coast Guard was that Public affairs is like golf. Everybody seems to play a little bit and they think they know what they're doing because they can go out on the local golf course and, you know, hit par or whatever, or under par, and they're doing really well. But there's a vast difference between people who puddle around on the local golf courses and a professional, and they don't understand that. And uh, so that's what we get. We get these local you know, people who think, well, you know, I, I did some talking or I've written or did some journalist classes or I did speech class. I should be just fine. Like, No, there's a vast difference between your little experience and what we're coming in with from the field. And uh, they uh, well, like I, I said, again, you know, this line comes up a lot recently is that they're, they're ignorant and they're arrogant about the fact that they're ignorant. So they don't listen to uh, the experts because they think they know better.
0: Um, and in in corporations you see that oftentimes in the approval process where there there is a set approval process for documents and yet somehow a senior executive seems to exert uh, themselves into that process and and then you start seeing complete rewrites of press releases and other information um, by somebody, you know, and it happens with attorneys as well. Oh, yeah. Budding authors out there who uh, who want to spend time, you know, editing this particular document. Uh, but it's a challenge, you know, that private sector faces a lot too. I saw it just a couple of weeks ago at a major drill.
1: Well, I like to, when I think about responses and when I hear about different responses, I like to cluster them into good, bad or ugly because I've always liked the good, the bad and the ugly um, and the one you just described sounds like an ugly response. Oh yeah,
2: that, I would. That was close to one of the worst. It's right down there at the bottom.
1: Yeah, because to me, an ugly response is where things it's self-inflicted. It's yes. happened because of the people in the room. Um, but what about a good response? If if what was the best response you were ever part of, and what made it?
2: There was a uh, shipwreck and oil spill in Dutch Harbor, Alaska. Uh,
1: It's on the Aleutian
2: Islands out there. And we were at the very early stages of the development of the Joint Information Center. And I had gone from being really anti-doing Joint Information Center to uh, swinging 180 degrees as we were in the process of developing it. And it literally went down on Thanksgiving morning. And I got a call. I thought it was a joke. My boss called me up. Uh, you know, Chris Haley from uh, Seattle. He was my boss at the time. And he said, hey, Adam, pack your bags. We're going to Alaska. I thought it was a joke because it was the only state in the union that I had not been to. And I had mentioned that, like, you know, one day I need like to go to Alaska. And so sort of, he calls me up Thanksgiving morning. Yeah, pack your bags. You're going to Alaska. And I, I laugh, but he showed up my house, at, you know, a few minutes later and went to Alaska. And I didn't get back until the day before Christmas. Well, I was up there for a while. And what was great was I was able to take all the um, all the stuff that we have been developing and and uh, we were about to put together that would become the NRT JIC model and field test it or run it through. We were we were taking all of from experiences and, and uh, after action reports from previous cases and said, these are the things we need to really concentrate on. And being on a small island. I was feeding information out to Chris, who was anchored in Anchorage, and he was feeding it to the national media there, because uh, we had one media station in Dutch Harbor, and they were the newspaper, television station, and radio station all in one. I mean, you know, it's a small place. Yes, and So I would speed to them, plus I would put information and video and all that kind of stuff, and either faxing it to them, it you know, tells you how far back that was, or I was putting uh video on... Uh, coast guard aircraft that would fly it to um the mainland along with supplies and stuff that was going on and it was really great because we got to do everything from the national level to the local level media to uh we had never really done a lot of community relations being that we were the coast guard we um we had a tendency to deal with the crisis and then the 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 latter part of it, you know, dealing with the local community was not something we normally had to deal with very often. But Dutch Harbor only had six thousand people in it, so I had to set up an entire community relations process, and it was really great because it would be things that we would use that ch- we'd actually go back and rewrite and say, "Oh, yeah, this is this is what you should do." But um, I had gone out to the smoke smokejumpers course, public affairs course, out in Redmond, Oregon, just prior to this, and. Those are the guys that uh, helped develop the whole ICS process, and these public affairs specialists that were uh, were out there. Um, we were trying to basically get information from them so that we could create the Joint Information Center model. And of course, they hadn't written anything down. They were just experts and they knew everything. So we had to take copious notes and steal all their train, all their uh, uh, presentational aids. And uh, one of the things they talked about a lot was. Uh, the community, the communities you're working with, but but also the response community, which I'd never thought about before. And how when you're out there working, you're working from, you know, before the sun's up and, and, uh, you know, it's dark a lot that time of the year. So you're working a lot in the dark, doing a lot of work, and you don't know what everybody else is doing. So I would provide updates, all my news releases, plus all the photographs, and I'd post them over top of the the coffee mess where everybody kind of gathered in the morning, to eat or to get, you know, get their coffee and their donuts or whatever before they went to the meetings. And I also posted them on the on the wall in the uh where the incident command post was so that the people who were working could see what was going on outside of their little narrow um area of, of their part of the operation. And it helped with morale because they go, oh yeah, hey, yeah, you know, look, you're over there working and that's so-and-so, you know, he's working on the other beach. And I've never I know we, we flew on in the same airplane, but they hadn't seen each other since they arrived because of the l- level of work. That worked really well. Uh, I was putting up information in the two local um, grocery stores, basically poster side stuff I'd print out. It would be my news release. I'd I'd have a big map showing where the oil was at. And we learned a lot from the public. I, I, just, I was holding uh, town meetings or scheduling town meetings. And we'd, we'd meet in the uh, fire hall and the people would come ask questions. And that was going really well. The public was pretty happy until about 10 days into the incident, we we, we started realizing that, um, that there was a little bit of hostility because I would stand with the crowd and listen in to what they would say or questions or sometimes people kind of state questions, but not loud enough for anybody to hear, you know, kind of a, I don't know, a, a little bit of a, a, kind of a mumble kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, what are they going to do about this kind of a, a statement, but it mm-hmm. didn't go anywhere. So I would I would try to write those down and get them to the incident commander so that, uh, we could fumble with, come up with an answer and provide it. But uh, I, I noticed that getting kind of worse. And so I, I pulled a couple of people to the side. And I said, Why you got, I had been there long enough now. I could call him by first name. He says, why, why are you angry? We're doing all this. And he says to me, I'll tell you why we're angry. This spills right in our backyard and we can't go out there to see it. He says, Well, I provide you with the video of everything every day. He says, Yes, but we can't go out there and see what's going on. I said, so you want to go out onto the spill site? And they said, yeah, we want to go out there and see what you're doing. And so I went and talked to the incident commander. I said, listen, uh, I think um, we should set up a van and I'll uh, transport these people out there and they could look at the spill site. I'll uh, keep control of them the whole time and I'll I'll bring them back. And I think that'll help reduce the community hostility. Now, he thought I was was crazy. He says, but sir, you know, give me three days. So I got the last rental vehicle on the island a big 17 passenger van and I put this notice out that, uh, I would, you know, if you want to go see the site meet at the library that next morning. And so I, uh, I drove around that morning to, to uh, to go to the library and there was 1500 people standing outside. The library. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. So I uh, got, <laughs> I drove around, I uh, you know, I, trying to come up with something to do. And I, Drove in and I parked behind the, uh, I didn't realize nobody knew what vehicle I was driving. And I parked behind the library and I saw the pastor that I had worked where He was a pastor as well as a um, teacher at the school. And I'd given a presentation at the school about oil spills just to educate the kids. They, uh, I I waved him over and I said, listen, I need your help. He's what I said, I can't take 1500 people. It carries, you know, like 15 people or whatever, 17, 17 people on the van can you organize these people? Cause they're not going to listen to me, but they'll listen to you because you're a local figurehead. And that was one of the things we talked about getting local figureheads on your side. And so I said, yeah, uh, that was a strategy I'd learned from attending the Redmond course. And so I went over and talked to him He said, sure, I'll do that on one condition. I said, what's that? And he said, I get to go in the first van. He said, Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I would take, drive this van out to the the site and there's this big ship sitting there on the beach and, all the cleanup going on i remember coming around the bend and the curve and everybody yelling stop and i'm thinking the hills coming down the side because they all said it so loudly and instead they just wanted to stop they all piled out of the van and they took their photographs <laughs> standing so that you could see the ship in the background it was just a like a foresty thing and i got them up on site and they did that so i would do this for the rest of the time I was there, remember I said three days now, nah, for the rest of the time I was there every day, people would come and want to go out to the site. All they wanted to do was see what was going on. And then there was a point when they didn't have enough people to do cleanup. And so they were talking about flying people in from Seattle to do the cleanup because there was that uh, spotted owl thing and all the lumberjacks were out of work at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. OK, so they were going to hire all those guys and bring them up. Well, the cannery there on the island only operates certain times of the year. So it was shut down right then. So they make this announcement and the community uh, almost goes into a mutiny because they're not working right now. And you're going to fly people in, give them a bunch of money to stay at the hotel, to go out to work on their beach. And it it takes, I said, you know, and they were doing this. And this is one of the times where I kind of spoke up in the command meeting and they were talking and. The uh, responsible party um, guy was going on about it. I said, You know, sir, you got to stop here for a minute. If you do this, you will, these people will just murder you. And he goes, What are you talking about? I says, Why don't you just hire the local people? Uh, I mean, why don't you just fly in an expert to train them? It's got to be a lot cheaper. Plus, these people are going to be more willing to work. It's their own beach. So, you know, they're going to do a better job. And you're going to make them very happy. And you're going to go from being a villain who spoiled a bunch of oil to a hero that's providing them jobs in the in the wintertime and Christmas approaching. Uh, I can't see this being anything but a, a win for you. And it's going to just fly the experts in. They did. They did do that. I don't know if they went, did it because I said so. But they uh, maybe the money thing flipped them over. But they did that. And the, the next thing you know, all the, a lot of local people are out there working on the site.
0: A quick note for our listeners, as you can tell, Adam has a lot of stories to share. On our next episode, Adam recounts a crisis incident when he says the government ordered him to lie about what was happening in the response. It's a fascinating and frankly disheartening story, but told with Adam's unique flair and honesty. Tune in to hear Adam recount that experience on our next episode. So thanks for joining us for this episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, please like and subscribe to the podcast and give us a a five-star rating. And please tell your friends and colleagues about us as well. We'll see you again for another episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast.